0: Welcome to the Good You Can Do podcast, where we share tips and strategies to help you reduce waste, live a healthier life, and protect the planet for future generations. My name is Andrew Duncan, and you can find out more about this project at our website, goodyoucando.com. A couple of very quick announcements before we jump in. I think you're really going to love this episode. Mike's journey is so inspiring. If you have ever thought about leaving your current role behind to do something fun or work with plants or just do something that's uh, in line with your passions, then I think you'll really enjoy listening to Mike's story. and our discussion, we talk about a thing called the Earthworkers Programme, which is a real life-changing educational program that I went on last year. It's run by the For the Love of Bees Charitable Trust. It's a real deep dive into the whole way that plants work, and uh, all about um, the modern way of kind of urban farming and if you're interested in that space even if you're just interested in growing food at home or just uh, hearing about how plants can save the world then i'd really encourage you to check it out their next course is on the 16th to the 20th of may in tamagipikoto auckland uh, you can find out more just by googling Earthworkers program or googling for the love of bees uh, and i'll also put a link to it in the show notes as well Quick shout out to Climactic, the Climactic Collective, which is the podcast network that Good You Can Do is part of. Uh, If you're interested in more amazing climate-focused podcast from the Australasian podcasting community, go and check out climactic.fm uh, and you can check out the Climactic podcast itself as well. And one last comment, uh, this episode was recorded while we were holidaying in Auckland and the mic quality is pretty average. I didn't have my usual mic with me, I was just recording it on the Bluetooth headphones, so apologize that it's not really top-notch, but I think you can still get the message and most of the time it's mic talking anyways, so... You'll be able to hear his wonderful story. And uh, without further ado, let me introduce you to Mike King. Mike, thank you so much for taking a bit of time to jump on the podcast. Mike is a uh, professional arborist by by background, um, but has recently been on a bit of a transition. Uh, he's um, transformed a previously uh, can I say, kind of abandoned space at Otaki College into a thriving uh, urban farm and garden, uh, which we'll talk a, little, talk a bit more about. And uh, Mike also uh, runs foraging tours around the Wellington Botanical Gardens and also in, uh, in on the Kapiti Coast, where Mike lives, where you can go on a tour with him and learn all about native plants and edible plants that you might have just previously walked past and not really thought much about, which is a super cool way to... Engage with engage with nature, and I'm super excited to hear more about that today. Um, but Mike, we we originally met at the Earthworkers course, or through the Earthworkers program uh, last year in 2021, which is a regenerative horticulture learning experience put on by For the Love of Bees. Where I guess to to describe it in a small way, they they teach you how to grow a a whole lot of plants and vegetables. Uh, in a really small space, like super hyper-intensive farming uh, in a completely regenerative, biology-first, organic way. Uh, And it was quite an experience going through that. And maybe that's a good place to start. I was going to say, what attracted you to doing that Earthworkers Program in the first place, coming from that arborist background?
1: Mm. Morning, Andrew. Uh, Thanks for having me. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Good question. I... I was very nervous about starting this project at Otaki College and I was looking at the the weedy fields that lay before me and had really no clue about uh, growing veggies and and those sorts of things. So I thought, um, yeah, th- this could be something that would help and it, it really did. I was really glad I went on the course. It uh, gave me a lot of answers for a lot of questions. Uh, I was surprised though because I have... Uh, Previously done quite quite a lot of training. I'm a uh, a German qualified arborist and a German qualified landscape gardener um, because I have a German wife and I spent ten years in Germany. But uh, yeah, I I thought I had knowledge on um, soil science and soil health, uh, but but not really. Um, I, I did learn a lot about yeah bacteria and biology and yeah, it was it was really useful.
0: What led you to finding that space at Northlake College? You know, like it, coming into that situation, even though you didn't, you know, maybe didn't feel like you had all the tools or knowledge to make it work. But, uh, but you, you, I guess you saw the space and thought, man, that, that could be better utilized. So how did that opportunity come about mm-hmm. for you?
1: Can I back it up a bit more? And Please. Just, just yeah. uh, I'll just start from from the beginning. When we came back from Germany, uh, it's going on eight years now, I suppose. I thought to myself i can't keep doing tree work five days a week it's great fun days go by really quickly but it's wearing my body out. and two three days would be fine but five is just too much so i started growing oyster mushrooms in a shipping container out in front of my house it was great fun learned it all on youtube fascinating stuff learned pretty quickly though that the daily grind of growing mushrooms is not really where it's at for me yeah they go off quite quickly and you've got to sell that product and uh, it was interesting, though, and I started selling them at markets, and I started selling them to restaurants, and so I got to know one restaurant in particular called uh, 5050 down Paraparaume Beach. The chef there, Helen Turnbull, she was uh, she's a very passionate chef. She does a lot of degustation menus, small portion, experimental cuisine sort of thing, and one day she asked me if I could find her green walnuts to pickle them. And I said, yeah, no worries. But how about trying black walnuts or Japanese walnuts? You want to have a go with those? And she said, oh, anything that's edible, bring it in and we'll have a play with it. So I did that. Basically, I dedicated every Wednesday to foraging for her. And that was that was a lot of fun. I, I was really amazed, actually, by how many plant products I could bring in. I like to talk about plant products because each plant has more than one product. If you think about a pine tree, it has uh, the pine needles, the, the pine cones, the, the pine pollen sacks. The the pollen itself or the resin so you know a pine tree has five or six products already and i was really surprised by how many plant products i could bring in it was it was a yeah for at least the first year every week i would bring in at least three new plant products it worked really well with my tree work i would get out to a lot of lifestyle blocks and um build really nice properties go down all those long gravel driveways that no one ever goes down and there's some beautiful lifestyle blocks here on the coast. And the, and the people were really interested in what i was doing and they always they were always willing to let me pick a few berries and uh it was great so i did this for a, for two years working for her uh, a lot of fun learned a lot and then i started I, somewhere along the lines i started posting things on instagram got some uh, interest from gin distilleries um are really gin's popular at the moment they're all looking for new native botanicals to you know give their gin the edge in the in the market and and they want everything dehydrated, so I started dehydrating things, realizing that uh, I started getting fascinated by the fact that some things intensify their magic and some things lose it completely. And and somewhere along the lines, I realized that uh, we can expand on our native spice range. If you think about New Zealand native spices, it's horopito leaf, kawakawa leaf, and that's about it. But we can, yeah, we. I realized some that yeah, we can actually do more than that. It was a couple of interesting discoveries, but we could talk about that later. But um, so then um. I, uh, oh yeah, so I started working for gin distilleries, trying to find them large quantities. They, they, I spent like a year running around finding them botanicals, just just um, running around trying to find them samples. And that was really interesting too. I was fascinated by all of this. Somewhere along the lines, I realised that I, I, I don't really like gin as a as a way to showcase a flavor it's I mean gin is what it is and you know it's like blending and um, complementing flavors and and all that sort of thing but as a way to showcase an an individual flavor or an individual spice I didn't really think like it was it was doing them justice Uh, so I got a bit frustrated with that and somewhere along the lines I realized that ice cream is a great way to showcase flavors cream and sugar just carry a lot I mean it doesn't work for every flavor but it did work for a lot of the native flavors that I was trying to showcase and so I started uh, adding that to my foraging tours. I, I didn't really feel, for a long time, I never really felt comfortable doing foraging tours because I didn't really feel like I had enough to offer uh, to make it a good tour. And then once I started adding ice cream to the tours, people walked away with a smile on their face, like maybe it was just the, sh- the sugar and cream, but it worked every time. Uh, so I'd add, add ice cream to my tours and that was great. And then uh at some stage uh i stumbled into being on a country calendar episode which was which was bizarre but uh also a lot of fun
0: it's brilliant um, too I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes for everyone it was uh the 2021 season episode 13 if anyone wants to so yeah. google it you can just look up like in country calendar but i'll link to it in the show notes as well and i definitely recommend it just watching you climb out the trees uh was crazy cool it reminded me of this book i read called the wild trees all about people climbing redwoods um yeah, really yeah cool that book, see. i remember that one yep it was always really cool to see someone actually doing what they talked about in their book and practice mm. so sorry that's a bit of a segue but uh i was Recently, actually
1: racing. wrote that guy a letter uh when i was living in germany i read that book uh the giant the red giants or something like that from yeah. bullet, something like that and I was so inspired by it at the time that I uh, wrote him a letter asking if, if we can come over and give him a hand or something. And he actually replied. I, was, I didn't expect that either. This, uh, and
0: just said, uh, Steve Steve, Steve Is that his name? Yeah,
1: Steve yeah He yeah. Wrote, us a, wrote us an email back saying uh, just recommending a few German scientists who were who are doing interesting work in Douglas fir trees. If we would uh, prefer to work with him because he's not he's not taking on volunteers. He just works with his students because he works at the university. But yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so where, where was i uh started working for gin distilleries started making do these foraging tours went on country calendar blah 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 that's right and then um well uh I've, I've started noticing over the years that um it would be good to get out of tree work in the long run i, I only really enjoyed to do with tree work i only really enjoyed the climbing uh hmm. tree work is awesome um climbing is is a lot of fun there's been a lot of development over the last 15 years with, with techniques and tools that you can use too. So just the, the uh, yeah, it's, it's always been a developing industry and, and it's been a lot of fun to be a part of that and to watch it grow and, and see the tools and, and constantly learning new things. And that was always great. Hmm. But uh, New Zealand's not that nice for tree climbing, to be honest. I mean, Germany was a lot of big old oak trees in the middle of cities, nice big trees. And it felt more like, more like um, extreme sport rather than job whereas when you come back to NZ it's just smashing out pines macs, and gums and poplars and shoving them through the chipper right Uh, you're never really pruning a a big old tree and so so yeah it it just kind of the grind of New Zealand tree work has been getting to me over the years and I have been have have been looking for a way to get out of tree work and uh, never really saw a way to fully get out of it and I was happy doing a couple of days that's fine but uh, one day I was, oh, so here we go. So the the mayor follows me on Instagram, the mayor of the Company Coast. And uh, he, he's he been a fan of mine for a while, and he, he asked me if I wanted to come along to a food hui uh, organised by the council after COVID regarding food sovereignty and food security on the company Coast. The company Coast used to be a real a real hub for growing. It's great weather up here, and the soils are really nice if you hit a little bit further than, than Waikanae, that. Otake and in the soils get really nice, uh, and the weather's a bit better. It used to be, yeah, it used to be considered, uh, before my time, I don't really know it like this, but uh, it used to be considered the fruit bowl of, of Wellington, and mm-hmm. you can still see scattered greenhouses all around, old, broken-down greenhouses all around the place if you get out a bit. So I, I tagged along. I didn't really know what I was doing at this food hui, but uh, I tagged along anyway. And uh, as the, everyone was introducing themselves, there was one lady there Kate Lindsay, she uh, works at Ōtaki College. Uh, she's a newly employed learning support coordinator, so a social worker at the college. And she mentioned that uh, well, she came along, really, because she had discovered this uh, rundown derelict uh, horticultural facility at Ōtaki College. And she was really keen on getting it back up and running. And uh, when I heard that, uh, I had heard rumors of the place, but i had uh, never seen it before. I jumped on the opportunity and uh, mentioned that I'd be really keen to be a part of it. And so we uh, worked together to acquire funding. And uh, the, the coast, uh, the council organized a few uh, like speed dating events for funders and fundees, which I was really fascinated that that's how it works. So you just have 10 minutes at each table and everyone sort of, you both do your spiel and then figure out where if you fit in with each other and then move on to the next table. It was just a great way to. Yeah, figure out how we can get funding. And it really worked. Um, we realised somewhere while we were there, we, we both realised that there is a lot of opportunity for funding at the moment in this this area. And uh, and we acquired funding uh, a little bit from the K- Kapiti Coast Council and then uh, from the New Zealand Community Trust. So um, Poki's money.
0: Do you remember what your kind of pitch was? like? In...
1: Um, quite early on, we went to the uh, to the remake- Remakery in, in, I guess, Lower Hut or Upper Hutt, com- Which sure, is like that,
0: that Common Unity. Uh, which is yeah. in uh, kind of like the Ramberg Hutt area. And I can put a yeah. link to that in the show notes as well. It's a incredible setup.
1: We went there, and, and I was really inspired by them. Um, I really, uh, I thought this what a what a what a great facility. And uh, but when I was chatting to the the lady who who first first started it, I asked her. It was, it was quite an important question to me. I asked it. Did you have like a did you have a plan when you first started? or has it grown into the plan or how how to cuz I really don't have a plan I'm just sort of like stumbling along here and taking the opportunities as they come to me and she said no it, the 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 plan is growing you know the the vision is growing and and it has to do with the people that come along as well and and, and the direction that they want to take it it's not all just you you're not going to have the vision that's going to what it's going to end up being from the beginning mm-hmm. so that was comforting to me and uh and so I've been working with that sort of philosophy i don't really yeah uh, haven't really had a, um, an end vision with with the project, but it's um, but I'm actually really happy with with the direction that it's going and, and the ideas that I've been having. So I went along, yeah. We started going to these funding things. Uh, we found funding. We've been working with that for about the last eight months. Funding will seems like it will always be an issue. Uh, future funding, which is which is frustrating because it's it's it. Uh, well not just the security for me but also um you don't know how much you should throw yourself at something and if you don't know you don't security so that, that's that's been a bit of a, a frustrating side of things but mm. um but i think there will we will get we will get future funding and I, we will proceed um
0: especially yeah. that you can show what you've done so far right and i'd I'd love to to dig in more and we definitely will dig in more that project i um, I was going to ask you about it sort of towards the end, but since you've been you know, speaking into this space about kind of that transition, I'm really keen to dig into that a little bit in sure. terms of, I've done a few episodes with people who have talked about transitioning from uh, one type of kind of career into another. And I'm really interested in the space of, you know, finding what good looks like for you and mm-hmm. having uh-huh. having the courage to explore that. And and, and I guess the uh, the confidence to feel that you, that you deserve to, to be looking for something that that works for you, like a, a a daily setup that you enjoy, the kind of journey that I went on personally a couple of years ago of leaving uh, property world, uh, kind of life to wanting to work more in a in a climate space. And I guess from other people I've interviewed and, and my own experiences, it can be a really challenging process, right? You can be, you can you can be through moments of doubting yourself and being unsure of what you're doing and not having a plan and not knowing what that future is going to look like. And so I was going to ask you, you know, what are your sort of first steps? look like and kind of i know you mentioned the oyster mushrooms but what was that process like of kind of understanding that it, that it definitely was time for a change because a lot of people will be doing a job feel like it's not right for them tough on their body um but you know but still just keep doing it and not take steps to actually make a change was there anything yeah is there anything that that worked for you to kind of help you make that transition or, or things that you'd suggest to other people to, to think about it if they're in a space where they're kind of maybe where you were with the arborist work five days a week and thinking gosh this doesn't feel like a long-term sustainable future
1: I was feeling with tree work um, I was really feeling the pressure to get out of it for a few reasons and it wasn't just because it was really tiring my body out it was also super dangerous I mean I started having Maybe it was through the fatigue of being tired, but starting to have regular accidents, pretty crazy accidents. Um, and 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 some of the trees that I get sent up to do are pretty crazy. And I don't know, maybe it's just getting older, having more accidents. And I mean, now I, I have a daughter too, so there's just these thoughts of the craziness of what you're doing, just sort of slowly eat away at you. And uh, I would start to dread the, the the jobs, thinking about lying in lying in bed, thinking about tomorrow's crazy trees. Those sorts, of, those sorts of things were were definitely pushing me to uh, to find a, a way out or a new direction. And yeah, and as I was getting older, the the physical side of things I found quite fascinating, just the recovery time. So in the past I could do could do five days a week and then just need Saturday, Sunday, do something quiet and I'll be sweet again on Monday. But after a while, a really, really hard day in the trees, geez, you'd need two days to, to feel normal afterwards. And, and that's not really sustainable. So there was quite a, a a bit of pressure I put on myself to to find to find a new direction, uh, but I knew that I had time and I still enjoyed the tree work. took some sides of things, I mean, it was I was self-employed. I could uh, delegate my time how I wanted. I could work with whoever I wanted. Uh, I was really happy with the with the group of boys I was I was spending time with. Um, every day was every tree job's a puzzle. It's always exciting. You've got beautiful properties you're working in, nice views, those sorts of things. But, yeah, I knew that I had a bit of time on my hands, but it was not going to be sustainable. So uh, first of all, I, I, it was easy the transition or or the, the not say the transition, but the I was flexible enough to to have time to to look for something else because I was self-employed. and uh, as a as a self-employed climber, you can earn okay money. so I only really needed to work two, three days a week, so I had a couple more days where I could start to play with other things without feeling guilty. And so I did that for a long time. I guess a couple of issues with, with doing something like that is uh, I had to, you'd have to, I didn't really have a clear plan, but I would, fo- I've just started following my interests, which is all well and good. But if you're looking for a business Uh, if you're doing this in the direction of business, then at some stage you come to the point of, should you invest in this machine or this tool or whatever or not? And uh, with the mushrooms, I definitely sunk quite a bit of money into setting up this mushroom business that I just sort of flogged off um, quite, quite spontaneously. Uh, and, And then lots of those sorts of issues constantly popping up. And I guess just seeing, um, As as the time carried on, uh, seeing different business opportunities pop up, like uh, when I realised that I could create a, uh, that that there is opportunity to expand on the spice range, I was like, well, should I be focusing on large scale spice harvesting or, or not? Or once I started making ice creams and realized that I could make a, a New Zealand native ice cream range, I was like, well, should I start making large-scale ice cream or what am I doing? So that's that's been a side of things which I which I found I didn't really think think about too much, but has probably um been quite a big a big issue. I guess what I did that I, that I found good was I just have just been following my interests. It's, it's potentially um selfish views, but it was selfish um motivation but yeah really just just following what i've been interested in um and that, that can be hard to think about what are you interested in as well i mean you, i was interested in spices but was i really interested in large-scale harvesting of, of native spices you kind of have to try it out first uh, have a little play with it so that's what i've been doing and that's sort of how i stumbled into the into this this project at the college uh and yeah that's that's probably the only well, it's it's not really amazing advice,
0: but it's. Uh, it's I think it's. I think yeah. it's awesome advice, Mike. I think it's really pertinent because I, I, people that I speak to, whether they're friends or family, or people that contact me through the podcast work, who struggle with this, uh, often feel like they need to solve that question of what they're going to do before they leave the current thing. Right? They're like, mm-hmm. well, well, what would I do if I didn't do this? What what job would I have? And it's really hard to answer that question when you're in the grind of whatever current. Career you're pursuing, uh, if you don't create some space to play and experiment and meet different people in different spheres and get exposed to different things, then how are you really gonna know? So, I take that as a really important sign that yeah, you don't have to have the perfect answer, and you won't know exactly what you're going to enjoy or like until you test things out and and experiment. Um, mm. Really, really cool point about yeah the the questions that you get as soon as you start playing with something it's like right Then we take this to the next level and, and i think there's there's a learning there too right like you start experimenting with the ice cream and it's like right i could start like mass producing this and create an ice cream factory and invest and you know have to find the money to do that um, but i really like what you've done where you've taken that ice cream learning uh and the spice and native plant learning kind of combined it in these foraging tours which allow you to keep both things quite small scale, but still meet people. And, and uh, so there's, I guess, you can be creative with what those solutions look like is what, is what that says to me that you can, it doesn't have to go down that uh, mass production line necessarily. Uh, you can try and think a little bit more outside the box into how you can join those interests up and and create value for people.
1: That's, yeah, that's that's been a really interesting part of it too for me. As uh, along this journey has been that I, I discovered that I really like like being creative, and and um, that's been has become really in the last maybe in the last year has become a, an a important guiding arrow. Is that I actually I enjoy being creative, and I'm not that interested in business and, and um, marketing and sales. I really just enjoy experimenting, and uh, I've been I guess the underlying interest of mine is nature i put a put a stamp on that one i'm really interested in in the the, the diversity of, of nature and, and, and all those sorts of things and just, there's so much it's so so quirky and weird nature and uh just try i, I enjoy showing that to people and i've always enjoyed For my friends when we've just been hanging out just going into the garden and blabbering on about the weird facts i know about plants and um and so finding new ways and 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 tools to, to help show that to people has has probably been um yeah the biggest biggest side of things for me. I mean that's why I, I guess I got into the mushrooms without really realising it. it's just because I found them fascinating and I wanted to show everyone these weird weird pink pink oyster mushrooms and stuff. So but uh, but yeah but always the question comes in, yeah well, but it's a business so you've got to try and make money and, and that always is how do, yeah,
0: I, how do I, mean? I pay the bills? Uh, how did you, one question I want to ask is how did you develop the knowledge of what is edible and what's not in terms of what what might be poisonous, what might be safe to eat? How did you mm. build up that that inherent yeah, database of knowledge in your own mind?
1: Uh, well, I guess I already had a bit of a a good starting point. So, I, you know, I've been working in, in the, I say, the green industry, that's what the Germans say, uh, in the green industry for, you know, the last 15 years. So I knew a lot about plants already, I suppose, and then it was just, Finding whether or not they're edible. I mean, I used the the resources, the books that were available, which is a few. And then um, once I chewed through those books, uh, we got to the point where a lot of what I was interested in learning about, you're not going to find in books anymore. So uh, what I do now is I use a database called Plants for a Future, which is my my go-to really. And it's not a it's not an ID page, so it doesn't have any photos. But it's, it's basically tells you about all the uses of plants. It's a British database, um, so but it does have a lot of NZ native stuff in it, surprisingly. It's a really good database. And uh, yeah, once you know the Latin name of the plant, then you just type that in and it just it just tells you all of the uses for the plant. So if it has any yeah, medicinal uses, culinary uses, if it's good for dyeing or if the timber isn't any good for anything. And for me, what's really nice is it's got one section on the um, – if there's any known hazards within the plant and so that's that's sort of where i start yeah have a look at that and then if there's no known hazards in the plant then i feel a bit more confident about playing around with it Cool. Mm. cool. i also needed a one thing i guess i should mention uh, when i first started doing foraging for restaurants i realized quite early on that i need a food safety certificate to do this so commercial foraging and uh it, that was an interesting rabbit hole to dive down there's not many foragers around and uh, so I um, yeah, approached the council and uh, to start off with, they said, no, that's not possible. You can't bring wild mushrooms into a restaurant. And I was, we started having an argument with the lady at the council <laughs> that, uh, well, but yeah, but you wouldn't want to live in a world where you can't have wild mushrooms on the on the menu. And she was like, but you can grow them. You can cultivate them. And then, oh, but not these ones and blah, blah, blah. So uh, in the end, I luckily, uh, my, uh, the officer, the, the food safety officer that dealt with me ended up being another lady. And uh, she was okay with it. Just had to find another forager in New Zealand that is, was already registered and find out what type of food safety certificate that person had. And then, then the council would feel much more comfortable about me doing it. And then I was privately audited by an, a, a private company and uh, they they didn't know what questions to ask me. They'd never dealt with a forager before. And in the end, we decided I won't harvest blackberries or gorse flowers or leafy greens from public land because we can't. Because I can't guarantee it hasn't been sprayed with Roundup, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that that was all good. That was basically the only rules really, except for uh, traceability. So I had to be able to say where I picked what and have that categorised or or, um, documented. So in the end, really though, I never really harvested much. I'm not really. I'm not picking things for restaurants anymore. But when I was, uh, I wasn't. I basically stopped har- harvesting on public land. It, it was always too awkward. There's not many places you can harvest. Like, yeah, I'm not allowed to harvest on the on the, sh- the beachfront, and I'm not allowed to harvest, or the shoreline, I mean, I'm not allowed to harvest in parks and reserves. So, you basically, public land, I'm only really allowed on the roadside. Yeah. And you can't really do that because of, of the hazards of, of being next to cars and, and pollution from cars and things like that. I mean, you, but you could maybe on some gravel road down a, um, yeah. A, a quiet road, maybe you could do some harvesting. I'm not sure, but
0: really smart to be able to share that learning and your tours, though, right? like It's such a nice way to, I guess, segue into that where you can still use that knowledge to add value where you're kind of getting, you know, it looks like you, it sounds like the the establishment's making it very hard to, to use these public spaces, which have so much promise. Um, so kudos to you for t- you know, creating the tours. And I should just mention at this point that if people are interested, go to finderseatersforaging.com where you can book a tour with Mike. What do people get out of those tours? What do they come away from Mm -hmm. saying? And what what are you trying to impart to people when they come along?
1: Uh, So I I don't see myself as a walking encyclopedia of of plant knowledge. I really, uh, there's lots of plants I don't know. And there's lots of plants I'm not really interested in either. So I've never really bothered learning them all. I guess what I do is I tell a story about my experience over the last three years, what I've been up to, which involves, yeah, experiences like dealing with the council when trying to become a registered professional forager, and in my experiences with working with distilleries, and and I never, I don't, I didn't really like it. Hey, eh? I, I was a bit disappointed. I felt, I felt a bit, uh, I got a bit disappointed in the whole marketing side of things, and I just kind of felt like the, that businesses they weren't didn't have the same passion that I did about about promoting these plant products. It was all just about trying to sell something. And, and and as soon as they had their product, then it was all about the kilo price and how much cheaper we can make it. And and I, I couldn't justify my prices anymore. And I realized that I have to start dealing with employees and going down that rabbit hole. So so I do, I mean, obviously we do talk a lot about plants and and, and my experiences with using them. I've never, for, I never really considered myself a chef either. I haven't, you know, I don't do much. I mean, I do cook, but I don't, I don't, used a lot of these ingredients. A lot of them are quite novelty products for, for high-end restaurants. And, uh, and and so I never really mucked around much with with pickling and preserving either, which which is a lot of a lot of what foraged products are. But I never really liked them. I never really liked the smell of vinegar in, in my house cooking away. It just never really been my jam. Uh, so for a long time, yeah, I never really wanted to do tours because a lot of I could ask all these questions, which I I mean I know that this plant's edible and that plant's not edible, but I never really knew what I'd do with it. And it was only really through working with ice cream um, and finding a way that I enjoyed using these spices or these these plant products that that I felt mm, more connected to the whole thing Uh, and and, and also found creativity in it as well, that I can now dive down more rabbit holes and and just enrich my own knowledge. Uh, so, So there's that. So... So I guess what it is is I'm telling a story, and I'm talking a lot about different plants and my experiences with them. A lot of my stories are also Helen's stories from her restaurant and how she used them, and, and that. And I tell those stories about having a bit of a glimpse into into her world, because that's that's a that's a fascinating side of things. So it's just seeing how a chef works with with plant products is is really fascinating. Like I mean, one day, this is a great. This is a great little story. So I went in there and she got me to try this weird powder, and uh, turns out it was she had juiced carrots. And then she taken the the pulp from the carrot, fermented it, dehydrated it, ground it into a powder, and then that was the powder. So it's fermented carrot pulp, um, and it was zingy and weird. And so I mean, in the future, I could imagine you know diving down the rabbit hole of fermenting stuff. It seems to really make amazing flavors, but mm. but I haven't yet. But um, yeah. So oh, and then there's the ice creams, and, and that's that's that's. That's always great fun. I I found with the ice creams, I've been on a few foraging tours in the past and I was always a little bit, I'd walk away a bit disappointed. We'd make like a salad or we'd nibble on some seaweed or something and it was okay, but never really walked away thinking, I'm totally going to go and try this now. It was always sort of like, yeah, that was interesting, but whatever. Like for a good example was harakiki seeds. If you nibble on harakiki, so New Zealand flax seeds, or black surfboard seeds, if you nibble on those, they're kind of mild, but you don't really taste much. They say the high in omegas I never really cared. And I've never really been interested in the medicinal side of things either. But with ice cream, if you take half a cup of those seeds, toast them in a pan, grind them up, soak them in the base mix of the ice cream for 24 hours, you really get this nutty, musky flavor. It's like a unique musky flavor out of the out of the ice cream. And you can smell that flavor. You can smell it when you walk past the the bush when the when the seed pods are ripening, they'll crack open and and you, you get this waft, this waft of this musky f- smell that just, when you walk past it, it just stops you in your tracks and brings you straight back to the ice cream. And so people walk away from the ice cream tasting, ins- I, th- I think, they walk away ins- excited and inspired to to play with them themselves. And that's probably been, that, that's been a real highlight for me.
0: That's so nice. And. Just fostering that connection between all of us and the plants that we walk past every day, but don't stop to appreciate. I think that's of so much value, man. I, I appreciate you you doing that work. It's something that can add so much value. Like I, I've got so much learning to do in this space. And when we went to the earthworkers course, I was such a noob. They had just had like leaves of kawakawa, and they had uh, they were just making tea. They were just making tea there. And uh, my daughter um, Charlotte's got like at home this little like kawakawa balm that's made on Wahiki island it's like really good to put it on like if you've got any like skin things going on and and so after going to the course i like took charlotte out to this big valley sitting off to the park near where we live and we were looking for a kawakawa and we found some because it's everywhere and we you know it was really nice to connect for her that right these, these are the leaves that go into this farm that she loves playing with and Came home, made a bit of a tea, and then I'm looking out my kitchen window, and there's literally like a cover cover bush right outside my kitchen window. I just never even knew what it was. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm running around trying to find this this native plant. Um, and the whole time it's literally like a meter from where I spend half of my day.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's awesome.
0: <laughs> just because I didn't uh, know. So I didn't have this had this knowledge or understanding of what that plant even was, which is
1: Well, you'll find this interesting. So specifically kawakawa for me has been a really exciting one and not because of the leaves at all I don't use the leaves at all because everyone already knows them and they, they, and they use them and that's great but what a lot of people aren't aware of so you you know you can eat kawakawa berries little orange, orange sticks they're, they're mildly sweet if you eat the flesh of the berry they're full of seeds little black seeds if you and if you if you weren't to bite down on those seeds, that would be a yeah, mildly sweet berry. But as soon as you bite down on the sticker seeds, you may, you, you know they, it's like you get that peppery kick that you would from Kawakawa. And that's great. And I was I would always restaurants had had asked me in the past to try and, and harvest kawakawa berries and it always seemed like an impractical berry to harvest because they you have two like two two hundred berries on the bush. The bush is laden with berries, but they'll only ripen up one at a time. So it always oh, wow. seemed like an impractical berry to harvest i'd go out for an hour and i'd come back and have maybe 10 berries and they're half eaten by birds and i just never really liked doing it and then one day one of the gender stories i worked for asked me if i they wanted a kilo price on kawakawa berries and i was like, oh i'm not interested and he said well we're going to dehydrate them anyway so it doesn't matter if they're green and as soon as i realized that it became a far more practical berry to harvest so i can harvest kilos off a bush in one go it's far more practical. And and the quality of the spice is really good. It's an amazing spice. It's like a, it's much more uh, rich and um, layered than than the leaf is. It's got like a, I always call it the New Zealand Christmas spice. It's got like a ginger nut touch to it, mint. It's it's really nice spice. And so that's something I really like talking about is the fact that everyone knows kawakawa. Everyone uses the leaf. Most people know about eating the berries, but it's just that you can pick the berries green and turn that into a spice that not many people are aware of. So it's just one of the things I like I really like to promote and chat about. And then there's Absolutely. the male flowers too because kawakawa is dioecious meaning meaning that male and female are on separate plants. And the male flowers have also have potential to be used as a spice. So it's uh one of the yeah an example of one of the, the things which I think that we can expand on you know, the native spices.
0: How would you turn those berries into a spice would that be like a mortar and pestle thing would you just sort of like grind them up and,
1: and... You use them fresh you could use fresh green kawakawa berries it's pretty intense but I, yeah, I just chuck them in the dehydrator, and then they turn into these black, skinny little sticks full of just, I mean, the flesh of the berry sort of just disintegrates into nothing, and you just get this stick of black seeds. Yeah, and then, then I, I personally just grind them up in a coffee grinder. So my my tools are really just a dehydrator, a coffee grinder, and, and an ice cream machine. And I've recently ordered a still, so uh, I'd like to start mucking around more with capturing hydrosols and essential oils and blending those into ice blocks and ice creams and just showcasing because a lot of the flavors don't work with cream and I'm just trying to find new other ways to help carry flavors. And I can imagine, uh, yeah, essential oils and hydrosols being, being a useful tool. I've also really, really loved, I would love to buy a, uh, a freeze dryer, but oh, geez, it's like eight, nine grand for a oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but that would be awesome. I'd love to get a freeze dryer as well. And just having new tools and new ways to help showcase flavors to people.
0: Fantastic, Mike. I hope there is a I hope there is a freeze dryer in your future at some point.
1: <laughs> not many on trade me, but um, <laughs> one day.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've talked about the foraging, which I really encourage people to go on one of those tours. Um, if someone is not in the Kapiti Coast or in Wellington to do the Botanical Gardens tour, you mentioned that Plants for a Future website. Are there any other resources or places you would send people that are interested in learning more about foraging and just appreciating the plants that are that are around us already or yeah, on their yeah. own land?
1: I mean, the books that I would just generally go to, this, uh foraging books by Andrew Crow. It's like a field guide. I've not one of his oh, ones. Yeah, yeah. he does really want on
0: native
1: plants. Yeah, that, that's a great starting point, that one. There's also another book, the, uh, it's like The Forager's Treasury by a lady called Joanna Knox. That's a nice one. Uh, for if if In regards to seaweed and mushrooms, I always recommend a couple of PDFs by a, f- a guy called Peter Langlands in the South Island. He's probably the most well-known forager. He wrote up a couple of foraging books and, uh, well, PDFs, which you can order from him. His company's called Wild Capture. Uh, And I specifically found the seaweed and the mushrooms useful. I mean, they're not the best photos and they're not the greatest uh, ID pages themselves. But what he does is he just focuses in on the top 15 varieties that you're going to find. And and that's just a really nice way to hone in on it, especially mushrooms. I mean, seaweed's the same. There's hundreds of varieties of seaweed around the Wellington coastline. And you can just get lost in, 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 in all of it. So just having a way to narrow it down. And then he talks about the... You know, lookalikes as well. So, found those to be really useful, useful tools.
0: Personally, like I've read that I've got one of the Andrew Crow books on native plants, and there's some good, there's some real quality photos, and there and a lot of drawings of things. Uh, but I still have this trepidation. Like I don't know if it's just bias from my upbringing or the way, you know, what I've been surrounded by growing up. But I have this kind of fear of like jumping into like picking something and trying it that uh, I'm going to eat something wrong and it's going to be poisonous. Um, do you think we you know, is that like, is there an overestimation? I don't with you know, say this with any disclaimer, but uh, do we? Is that fear inherent and in, and in, in, you know too much has that been bred into us, or or you know should we be really careful, or or other kind of things to watch out for, or advice you'd give for people to kind of get past that 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 fear that that certainly I've been I've had about engaging more with edible mm. native plants.
1: Good question. Uh, I would say that there are definitely plants out there that can kill you and or seriously injure you or what's the word I make you make you very sick. But that's no reason to stop playing with the plants. I mean, do your research and 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 have a play. Let me put it this way. There, there's lots of plants that you find saying saying that they're poisonous. You'll see in one book it'll say they're poisonous and then on in the next book they're being used for medicinal purposes. Uh, so it also has a, there's also a question of quantity. but there are some plants that you should stay away from, for example, hemlock, and that looks very similar to wild carrot seed. And if you start with wild carrot, so if you start mucking around with leafy greens, you should definitely know about wild hemlock. And it's not that hard to learn about it. it, it it's basically highlighted in every book, hey, watch out for hemlock. So uh, yes, there are poisonous plants out there, and you should be cautious, but it's not rocket science, it's it's all uh, it's all doable, I think. But I have poisoned myself. Um, I've got a nice little story about... Sure, <laughs> uh, if you're open to it. Uh, the, the, the one time I poisoned myself, I was working for the gin distilleries and I read somewhere in the uh, database for, I think it was Maori medicinal plant use database, that uh, kauri was used to be used as a, a quinine alternative or a tonic alternative for malaria. Uh, it's really bitter, really bitter, in the bark and the leaves. So I told this to the, one of the gin distilleries. I was like, "Oh, that awesome! How cool would it be to make a New Zealand tonic water?" And so I grabbed some bark and some leaves, and I boiled them up into a, into a broth. And then uh, when I really, sh- oh, and then I bought a bottle of gin, and I bought a bottle of tonic water, and a bottle of soda water. And I didn't at the time it was a long time ago. I didn't really know what I was even what my goal was or, or what my plan was. Just started. I wasn't even trying to figure out what I wanted to taste. And what I really should have done is just had some soda water and put some in and decided whether or not it tastes like tonic water or not, and that should have that would have been the end of it. But I, uh, I, I mean, I had after my experiments, I maybe had two shot glasses of this brew when I really only should have had a teaspoon of it. And about twenty minutes later, my guts just flipped out, and and they were I felt crook for about three days. I think I did my gut biome some real damage. And to be honest, ever since then, I still struggle now with with fatty foods. So fish and chips is what I really have to pay attention. What I'm, how much I'm eating, but maybe that's just getting older. I don't know. So that's, that's the only time I really poisoned myself. Um, yeah, you could definitely hurt yourself. But at the same time, I see koi koi and some roanga concoctions, and so yeah, I mean, it's
0: so it's um yeah, like you're saying it's the uh dose right like if you boil it up and and all that's getting into the water and then you you know had the two shot glasses on with that that could be quite a quite an intense dose of, of whatever's in that plant rather than if it's a medicinal use it might be used pretty sparingly or you know yeah, just different absolutely. parts of it so yeah yeah no, it's, I mean, a, it's that's probably a really the good
1: thing it's probably the same with lots of different essential oils you can totally overdo your, your from, you know your gut biome
0: yeah no thanks for sharing that Mike. that's a really important story and really useful i think so thanks man um okay. and I, we would love to talk to you about the more about the otaki project
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and and so where we left that um previously in the conversation we we're talking about you know the speed dating securing mm. funding uh and you know you come out of this this food hooey, uh, with the with the council, you found some funding, and so tell us about the space and uh, and what the what the transition has has looked like. Yeah, there. okay,
1: okay. Otaki College has an amazing horticultural facility. It is really impressive by any standard. It's silly, it's weird that they have this had this facility. It was locked behind closed gates. Uh, hadn't been They hadn't taught horticulture there in five years. Uh, hadn't really been looking any good for about the last ten years. The problem with it is it's too large. It's too much for the horticulture teacher to run himself, to expect him to run it in his private time. So we we realised there was the opportunity to justify uh, a funded role. Um, So we we acquired funding for a a 20-hour-a-week role. So I started working there Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays during school hours with students on a one-on-one mentoring basis. So they'd come out and work with me. So I have a timetable like all the other students, and every hour a different student comes out and works with me. Wow. Which we start, well, we actually, to begin with, I started the first three months, I just worked by myself because the work was too too dangerous to having students involved. Because the students I'm dealing with too, it's an intermediate, so most of the kids that I deal with are between 10 and 13. Seems to be the older kids are a bit busy with their exams and, and um, yeah, NZQA tickets or whatever, that I generally get the, the younger kids coming out to work with me. So... Yeah, started started working on renovating it. It's it's It has a massive big greenhouse with heat sensors, and automated sides. It's got a big packing shed. Uh, it's got a second greenhouse with heated beds for raising seedlings. Uh, we have outdoor veggie. Uh, we've got um, established orchards. We've got a um, multi medicinal corner. We've got a pizza oven corner. We've got bees. Uh, it's it's really impressive.
0: It's also, I, I should just cut it, sorry to cut in there, Mark. I was just going to say you shared photos and videos from when you first started and. I feel like you might be overselling it. Like, it like it was quite it needed a lot of work when you oh when you, yeah, first, yeah. When you first got there like there was piles of you know who knows what yes. and there were weird chemicals that you had to find a way of disposing of and there was I don't want to undersell how much of a a, a transition this involved and how much work this would have been for you at the start yeah,
1: um yeah. yeah it was a bit it was quite intimidating being uh standing there by myself with no one to bounce ideas off no one to make decisions with um so yeah it, it definitely was i guess that the, the the tip there is just to make a base, which, which was the greenhouse for me. The greenhouse was the first step because it was winter when I was working there too, so I was always cold and the packing shed's not very nice. So, yeah, turn the greenhouse into a nice space and then that's your go-to space at the beginning and then cool. slowly spread out from there. But there was always a juggle for me between working on infrastructure and, and renovating things and growing veggies at the same time so that people are already seeing some, some something coming out of there. But you don't want to spend too much time on the veggies because you're just taking time away from building and renovating and painting and whatever. Uh, but, yeah, it was a real mess. It was a real mess, I have to say. Uh, I guess the issue has been there's been quite a few community groups had tried tried getting in there over the years. And, and that, that uh, was potentially counterproductive because they'd get in there, they'd have a go, they'd get some funding for somewhere, buy some stuff, throw it in. And then it would fall apart. And then two years later, another group would have another go and they'd get in. And so you'd have all these weird sort of projects stacking up on top of each other and just clearing it all away and making a clean slate was, yeah, it was a lot of work. But I I was I really enjoyed it. I loved the project. Um, it was, you could see, see the potential. Uh, I've enjoyed working with the students. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've noticed, yeah, just building re- over, the, over the last eight months, building relationships with the students. I mean, now they're, they're really getting into it now that the place is looking nice and uh, like they come out before school or they come out at lunchtime and they're looking for jobs. Um, these are students that I don't even have on my, my schedule. Uh, so, it, and it just seemed like a really nice place. So you can, you know, at lunchtime when they're out there, you hear them squawking and running around and that's been really nice to to give that to them.
0: What, um, what were some of the first... Uh, so you set up the the greenhouse as a bit of a base um hmm. what were some of the first things you you grew or what were the, the what were some of the yeah the first crops that you well that you went with
1: well what i should have done is done a soil test to begin with which i didn't do uh, straight away i did that in connection to the earthwork of course I never even thought about doing a soil test uh, but somewhere along the lines on the earthwork of course they mentioned that you should do one and that they will analyze the test for us so i did that. Bit further down the track than I thought, than I should have. And so, uh, and I realized, well, we, we discovered lead poisoning in, in some of the beds and we did, we, we did manage to narrow it down. I'm really happy that we we could, um, sort of solve the problem, but at the time we didn't know. So, uh, I couldn't grow any, I decided I won't grow well before we can actually narrow down where exactly this lead's coming from. We won't grow any root crops. So it was all, uh, pretty basic to begin with just, uh, lettuces and, and, um, basically i started i didn't know what i was doing and i was just grabbed whatever seedlings i could get my hands on and whatever whatever grew whatever grew well kind of went in the ground and i guess what i'll mention is i went on another course i went on uh roebuck farms i went on jody roebuck's salad mix course for a couple of days and that was a really useful course as well where i learned a lot about salad mix production and i found that really interesting um so now a lot of our focus, not a lot of our focus, but say half of our focus is on salad mix production. And that's, I found that to be really a nice way to, to engage with the students because each job that you do is only a small job, like uh, growing microgreens or growing pea shoots, that every job just takes five minutes. And, it's, uh, and you see the results within a couple of weeks, which is useful too for the students to see that sort of feedback. Uh, and then you're creating an added value product. Putting it together, it's another little job mixing the salad together, and then we sell. Now we sell veggie boxes to the teachers, uh, so we do about ten veggie boxes a week. Uh, but at the beginning, awesome man, I was, I don't know, I was just throwing stuff together whatever grew well. I mean, brassicas seem to germinate well, so all through summer I had a ridiculous amount of brassicas <laughs> that were just getting hammered by um, by the white white butterfly. Yeah, that is what it is.
0: How do you Keep it fun for kids. Like, do they just naturally, you know, uh, enjoy it, or are there steps that you take to keep it fun for them? Because sometimes with farming spaces, you know, if you've got to plant 144 seeds in a cell tray, and then you've got to do a whole lot of trays, like, you can feel like you can get a bit a bit tedious for some people. But are there steps that you take? And and uh, you mentioned the microgreens one, which which seems really valuable because you know you get that instant feedback and you can start to see them sprouting pretty quick. Uh, but th- are there other things that you do to Increase that engagement factor. And I guess I'm asking for like maybe people who've got kids at home and they want to see if they, you know, expose their kids to gardening and see if they can um see if they like it and they become interested in it.
1: Well, I mean, the quick quick turnover is good. That's that's always a great, great starting point. But I found so basically what happens is um I have these kids come out to me for the first time that I have maybe half an hour with them. And in that time, they have in the first session, they're gonna decide whether or not they wanna come back. So I feel like I've got this half an hour time to sort of blow them away with nature. Uh, so I give them the tour and uh, I've noticed along the lines that yeah, immediate sensory stuff is the best, so smells and tastes. So I've got a lot of herbs in our garden. Um, so I give them the whole tour of the herbs and that's always an easy way to, to spark their interest. Uh, and one thing I've also done in maybe the last three months is I've set up Ice cream. My ice cream production in the packing shed, uh, which has been which has been nice. So uh, what I do is I make one ice cream a week with the students. And the rule is we have to use one ingredient from the garden in the ice cream. Uh, so I mean we've made chili and chocolate because we've got lots of chilies growing in the greenhouse. We made basil ice cream. Uh, we made walnut and honey with our own walnuts and our own honey. Uh, made mint and chocolate chip, uh, grapefruit. Fijoa next year next week actually when we go back i'll be making rhubarb and rose geranium sorbet um so that, that's a really easy way i mean i go around with the students i talk to them about all the herbs we try to try try a couple of different ice creams and i can then i can show them the you know the spices or the herbs that were used in the ice cream so yeah that seems to be a good approach to it i've found but yeah you're right there are a lot of tedious jobs and and you have to but I I've only got each student for 45 minutes so it never really gets tedious by the time they get out to me and I've told them the job to do it's about half an hour for them so you can't really go too wrong with half an hour but uh you have to watch out that I don't I don't yeah bore them or, or give them something too too tough uh, and now that's now that I've been getting used to the project they come out in pairs as well so uh that that can be quite a useful way to for them to spend time um, or to not get bored or not find it too tedious is when they're working with a mate my
0: four-year-old boy uh, connor he loves to help out in the garden and yeah, you know there are there are times when he's just thriving in it you know when we uh, open up a compost bin and we'll get some of the compost out and we just look at all the worms and all the all the little bugs uh, frittering around and you know he'll love that experience and then you know, I'll kind of bore him to tears once I say, right, we're going to shovel, you know, wheelbarrow loads of this compost around the property and he'll, he'll stick with me for a little while, but probably get bored after a bit. But I love the food as a vehicle for engagement. And that's something I'll definitely try to build into uh, my own experience with the kids in the garden is right. saying what can we make out of this or what can we turn this into or how can we turn this into and ice cream? Sounds like such a fun way to experiment. Um. Do you have a good, like, ice cream recipe that you would be um, oh, but, open well, to sharing yeah, or I can link to? Uh,
1: so I get my base mixes from, it's a company called Salt and Straw. Okay. They, they put out a book not too long ago, uh, which has all of their base mixes in it. And that's really, that's a really good resource for me. Perfect. Uh, I've yeah. got their coconut base mixes and their sorbet base mixes. Um, and so, yeah, it's basically just uh, milk, cream, milk powder, sugar. Glucose syrup and xanthan gum. So there's no egg white and sta- as a stabilizer. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I use.
0: And you find the that the fat and the and the sugar can be a nice carrier for for these flavors to to come through. Uh, yeah. And I guess would kind of like soften them and and, and things as well on some of the some of the herbs. So that
1: some things, you know, on bitter and nutty flavors, it works really well. Sour and spicy, not so well. Cream can smother them. But then you've got other options. So then you could use a sorbet or uh, see, for example, if it's a sour flavor that you want to get, let's say uh, a boysen, you want to make a boysenberry ice cream. If you just mix boysenberries into cream, it's not, you're not going to get that sour twang that you're looking for. So what they do, and you'll you'll you know this, is they make like a compote and, or a swirl, and then they mix that into the ice cream in the last minute so that you've still got that jammy that jamminess in the ice cream, and then when you lick it, you'll get that sourness from the jam as well as the creaminess. So you've got you've got different ways to to try and lure the flavour out. Uh, nice. So that's another 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 thing that I find fascinating about it all, and it helps with the keeping it creative and interesting for me. Is yeah, trying to find different ways to to showcase a flavour. It doesn't have to be cream, but um, yeah, you've got lots of options.
0: One other thing I wanted to ask you about was you actually. Um, have found some really fun ways to engage with the students too, and you mentioned one that you've just started playing with, but which which was like the kind of Saturday night tasting mm. events, um, which you, which you may run more of in the future, where you actually had kids playing musical instruments and kind of hosting this kind of event where the public could come along and try different flavors.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've been trying to find ways to connect the community more to the college, to the college gardens because it is tucked away a little bit. It's behind, you know, we do lock the gates at night, so. I have been I have been calling it a community garden, but at the same time we don't open it up all the time to the community. So it's been it's been a weird one trying to figure out how is this going to work in the future and what can we how can we how can we connect more to the community? And I was thinking, do I open up the, the gates on Saturday mornings to to the general public to for volunteers, I suppose, but really it's also just to show people around. And I spend you know I'll dedicate I'll give everyone 20 minutes to show them, give them the tour, and tell them my plans and whatever. And then. Yeah, I realised now that this, so I turned the greenhouse into a bit of a classroom. So half the space is growing space and half of it's a classroom. And that, I realised, works really well. The students like it. It's a nice space, especially now that we're getting into the colder colder times. And I realised I, I'm sure I could hold an event there. I was just trying to think of a way to do it. And I thought, OK, it has to be at night time because during the daytime, it's the, the, the temperatures are too unpredictable in the greenhouse. Uh, and at night time, I've got a gas heater so I can make it cosy in there uh and then yes yeah, so i started to realize okay let's do let's try ice cream tasting and not not everyone's interested in going on a two three hour foraging walk and, and hearing about plants it's just, just can be quite um, educational but, but not necessarily everyone's cup of tea but everyone likes trying ice creams and and everyone i'm sure everyone's curious about native flavors so started hosting these these events and realized that it's a great way to connect the community to the college because i can work with the students yes yeah, so i have the student band playing Music I, in the future, I haven't done this yet, uh, but I can have students being the the waiters, being the MC, I suppose, in the future, I don't know. Uh, so that's that's been really good. Uh, they work really well. It's a great event, um, a lot of fun. Uh, and I just, yeah, added another one yesterday, actually. So uh, that'll be good.
0: Such a, such a cool way to let uh, your students kind of show off what they've been working on too, if they want to <laughs> invite family along, I imagine.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also like the idea, I mean, the space is really good for having younger kids come in. So what, um, one thing that I've noticed with the garden really in the in the last couple of months is that it's a great space to facilitate kindies, play centers, uh, young school groups to bring them in, spend a few hours there. They go picking fruit. They look at the pick veggies. Uh, we can even crank up the pizza oven. We give them ice cream uh, and they love it. They, the little kids, they get to climb up the ladder and, and they get to try figs and, and apples. And we got, we've got a really wide variety of fruits there. So that's been really nice. And I've realized, and I've been just humming and humming about ways that we can do more towards dealing with these younger kids. Um, I, I really like the idea. I think the facility is fantastic for school holiday programs. And uh, and now I was thinking in the greenhouse, it'd be great to, I've been chatting to to Kate, the the, the learning support coordinator. She's basically my contact at the college. Uh, but she happens to be a drama teacher as well. And I thought it'd be cool to put on like a show in the greenhouse. Okay. Where, then we can uh, move move the tables and chairs around in there and, and I just put beanbags and, and pillows and things in, in there and then yeah, have some sort of some some sort of show and, and we could work with the students and the drama department um or the, the music department or uh, to create some sort of shows for the kids.
0: I think it's uh it's something that makes me so passionate about this kind of urban farm uh, movement, which the Earthworkers program and the For the Little Beach Trust are trying to support is Bringing these vibrant green spaces into urban environments, so it's not tucked away uh, in rural areas. Although that's obviously necessary too, but but that we can have some of these spaces in amongst our urban centres and cities, where your play centres and kindergarten groups can come and visit them, and and school students can engage and and see a whole diverse mix of plants growing and and see the potential and try the flavours and just be exposed to to all this stuff. So. Uh, Kudos to you, Mike, and thank you so much for your hard work in that in that space. Um, one question I was going to ask on this was if someone's listening to this and they're in a different part of the country and they drive past a spot maybe every day and they think, "Gosh, that that is an underutilized area where where something like what you've done could happen." What would you recommend they do? How would they best kind of investigate that or, or look into that?
1: Yeah. I would say the earthworkers course was great. That was a really good. Starting point for me. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad that that was the first step I took. Uh, and I, I a lot of the worries which I had when I first started was yeah, the intimidating, the weeds. I was so intimidated by the weeds. I thought I have to put weed mat on this stuff to get to get started and kill it all, and then have a, a good starting point. Um, and that really wasn't an issue at all. I was so surprised how when you Put down some compost on top. You, like I was thinking, all right, I'm going to have to buy a cardboard and I'm going to have to lay it out. It's going to be and make it look really nice. Uh, but it wasn't, didn't need to be like that at all. It really was just do a soil test and that you really could get that one out of the way first. Uh, go on, of course, to wrap your head around it all. And then um, oh, at the same time, start making compost. Um, good starting point as well. Uh, and then good, healthy seedlings going in and uh, quantity. Um, really thick planting uh is, is is a good starting point but um i'm sure there's other elements that you need to cover too i mean like i mean I, I, this was a funded project so uh the, the question of, of getting an income is was not so important um but i'm sure that is important for a lot of other people so i don't know about that side of things uh i wouldn't <laughs> i don't think um i don't think i could still make an income off what I'm doing over there (laughs) at the moment. Uh, So I probably shouldn't say too much about that side of things.
0: But there is certainly more of a, I see more of a movement towards um, funding for situations like this, as much as it can be still very hard. There seems to be more money flowing into the space and more people seeing the value of these kinds of projects, right? Um,
1: You're right. Uh, That's another really interesting point, is that there is funding opportunities. I think if you can show... You can show how how it's good for the community. That's a really important factor.
0: No, yeah, I appreciate your time so much, Mike. I like the diverse range of topics that we covered and I really appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, um, yeah,
1: it's a funny story, hey, a I, it. I, Yeah, no worries. Uh, it, yeah, it has been an, an interesting ride Uh, yeah. and I'm still really excited to see how things go for me.
0: Yeah, I love that theme of creating, creating space to play, creating space <laughs> to be creative uh, and explore your interests. I think something that, that we that we can all benefit more from, right? Um, we we give a lot of time to our careers and to our jobs, and um, it's really a value to to have space to to pursue um, things that make you happy. Cheers yeah cheers mike appreciate your time thank you so much for this uh take yeah. care and uh best of uh, wish you the best of luck with the future with the foraging tours with the ice cream making with uh getting your freeze dryer and with uh with all college your project well, uh, yeah
1: cheers andrew appreciate cool. it
0: thank you for listening if you enjoyed today's episode please share it with your friends and check out our previous episodes for lots of other cool info like this. And head along to our website, goodyoucando.com, to subscribe to future updates. You can also follow us on Instagram at do.
1: This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E. Media studio.